How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then we will begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to study your word. We thank you that from your word we can have an understanding of why we are here and where history is going and how we fit in and the tremendous impact we can have as believers through living the spiritual life. Father, we pray that as we continue our study, we might gain a greater appreciation for the importance of these things and that while prophecy relates to things in the future, it impacts our understanding and and application of doctrine today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We started a study last time on the doctrine of the pre-trib rapture, the pre-tribulation rapture. We started off by asking two questions. What is the rapture? And secondly, when is the rapture? These are the two uh, Big questions, the much debate about the second aspect of just when the rapture occurs. In terms of answering the first question, what is the rapture? We had a definition that the rapture is the resurrection of all dead church age believers and the removal of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age immediately before the tribulation begins. Sometime or another, you're probably going to run into somebody who doesn't believe in a pre-trib rapture. You're going to be talking to them, and they say, well, how can you believe in the rapture? That's not even in the Bible. Well, words like Trinity, hypostatic union aren't in the Bible either. In fact, most of the words we use aren't in the Bible because we speak English, and the Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew, but that's being a little facetious. The term rapture, though, is a translation that comes from 1 Thessalonians 4:13 through 18, which reads... Then we who are alive and remain, I'm starting off in the middle of the verse on the overhead, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And the verb there, translated shall be caught up in the English, is the Greek word harpazo, which is translated by the Latin word rapturo. And that is where we get our English word rapture. Now, one of the things you often run into when you're studying prophecy is that some people think, well, there's so many different opinions about prophecy. You've got people who are post-trib, mid-trib, partial rapture, pre-wrath rapture, pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill, and pan-mill. Those are the people who just think it'll all pan out in the end. They're just too difficult for me to study all of these things, and there's so many different positions and so many different scholars take so many different... We just can't know. I'll just be glad. That's sort of the pan mill, pan trib. It'll all work out somehow. And so they want to be agnostics about prophecy. Somehow it'll all work out. Well, a couple of things we have to keep in mind. It's difficult, but uh, understanding difficult things sometimes is tremendous blessing and is... It's not only a challenge, but you know, I'm sort of reminded uh, of, of a line in um, you know, oh, what movie was that with Tom Hanks, and he was it was about the women's baseball league of their own, and uh, she he's talking to uh, Gina uh, Davis, and she says, "Well, it just got too hard." And he says, "Well, it's the hard that makes it great. If it wasn't hard, everybody'd want to do it." And there's something about taking on a difficult challenge that's, that's uh, important. And I think that to understand prophecy a lot of times, you have to understand all the other areas of doctrine as building blocks before you get there. 
But the Lord did not communicate these things to us to keep them hidden. It's it's part of revelation. And the very concept of revelation means to illuminate, to disclose, to uncover. And God has uncovered the future. He has revealed, He has illuminated these things to us. And so we can't just become agnostics. You know, the Greek word agnostic is the alpha privative, which is the negative, like UN in English, A plus gnosis, not knowing. People say, I don't want to know. But it's interesting, we're talking about Greek and Latin translations here. The Greek word for agnostic is translated into the Latin word ignoramus. (laughs) So most agnostics would not take kindly to be calling called ignoramuses, but yet that's really what they, what they are. So just remember that the next time you talk to somebody who claims to be an agnostic, you might not win too many points. So the Bible teaches that we, that is believers who are alive and remain at the coming of Christ, that he will come in the air, will be caught up along with the dead in Christ to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with him. We looked at various words last time that are used in relationship to the rapture. Words like gathering together, assembly in 2 Thess 2.1, that we will all be changed in 1 Corinthians 15.52. The coming of the Lord, which is uh, parousia, which is not a technical term uh, and refers to both the second coming and the uh, rapture. Uh, Epiphaneo, which is in Titus 2.13, also found in uh, also referencing both the rapture and the second coming. So there's a number of technical terms. And then we looked at six key verses, John 14.1 through 3, Titus 2.13, Philippians 3.11, Philippians 3.20, 1 Corinthians 15.51, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 through 18, um, just to see the six key verses for teaching the pre-trib rapture. Then we came to the second question. When does the rapture occur? And there are three basic views. Now, this terminology seems to always confuse some people. It's pre, post, mid. Pre is before, post is after, mid is in the middle of. So you have um, uh, the first view we have up on the screen is the partial rapture view which is the idea that the the spiritual Christians will be raptured at the beginning of the tribulation, but those uh, naughty carnal believers who uh, miss Bible class and forget to confess their sins, they're the ones who are going to have to go through the tribulation. And uh, then there is the view of the mid-tribulation rapture that The rapture occurs at the midpoint of the tribulation, about the time of the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist desecrates the temple. So believers in this view and in a new view called the pre-wrath rapture view, which takes has believers going 80% of the tribulation up to the last few um, bold judgments, and the problem with that view is that, that, they, that people who hold these views focus on the tribulation as either the wrath of man or the wrath of Satan. But the tribulation, while it has elements of the wrath of Satan, Satan's great temper tantrum, his last opportunity to try to run the planet, um, while there are elements of the wrath of man and wrath of Satan, it is the time, as we'll see in a minute, of the wrath of God. And the very first judgment poured out, the first seal judgment poured out during the tribulation is called the wrath of the Lamb, meaning of Jesus Christ. So there is the wrath of God, which believers never experience, which goes all the way through the tribulation. So that's one reason no believers go even halfway through the tribulation, no church-age believers. And then there is the post-trib rapture that... The church is not raptured until the end of the tribulation. That the church is not raptured until the end of the tribulation. And then um, it's sort of like a boomerang effect. They go up and come right back down. We saw in John 14, 1 through 3, that Jesus said, Where I am, there you may be also. He said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it not so, we're told you I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Where he is is heaven, not the earth. And so that is a reference to the fact that believers do not go up and come right back down. I'm going to do something. I'm going to, we're going to have a little playtime here. Ernie, come here. Jim, you come here. Um, Tony, come here. I need three people. Wrong Ernie. I'm going to get... Okay, now, I saw this done years ago, and this hangs with you forever. Okay, Tony here is going to be a... a Unbeliever. He's never going to make it. He's going to roast, <laughs> roast and toast for all eternity. Yeah, I should go over here. <laughs> okay, stand over here. Stand over here. This walking across the front of the church is like walking through a timeline. Okay, we're going to go from the present to the future. Jim is going to start off as an unbeliever, and he's going to trust the Lord in the middle of the tribulation. And Ernie here is going to. He's a church age believer. Now, all three of you start walking through time. Now, what happens at this point, the rapture occurs. So you didn't know when it was going to happen. So you're raptured. So you just go off here. You're, you're in heaven. And now we have two unbelievers, and they're going through the tribulation. And um, now, <laughs> now, Jim suddenly hears the gospel and decides he's had enough of this, so he trusts the Lord. They, he survives all the persecution and everything. They come to the end of the tribulation. The Lord comes back, and poor Tony, he goes off to judgment. <laughs> now, Jim still has his normal mortal body, which means that he can still have children. So he's going to enter into the millennium, and he is going to have children who will populate the millennium with mortal bodies. Some of his descendants might even be among those who revolt against the Lord in the Gog and Magog revolution at the end of the millennium. Okay? Now, that's important to remember him. Okay, let's go back. Let's start over. We're going, now we're going to do the same thing. Each one represents the same, but now this is according to the post-trib position. Okay, now come along. everybody. Now, the tribulation starts, but see, rapture hadn't occurred yet, so they're all there. Now, Jim becomes a believer. So they come to the end of the tribulation now, and the Lord comes back. And uh, Tony, he goes off to <laughs> judgment of the lake of fire. He's just always a loser. These, <laughs> these guys get raptured, and they immediately, because it's a post-trib rapture, these two guys get raptured at, at, right at the instant of the second coming, so they both get resurrection bodies. Who's going to populate the millennium? See, isn't that clear? Just makes it just very simple. Thanks, guys. Now, no matter how much exegesis and nimble-toed eisegesis and messed-up theology and fancy theological arguments you hear for another position, that will always stick with you. And that's one of the major problems with the post-trib position is that they don't have anybody who can repopulate the millennium. So ultimately, and one of the things that we will emphasize when we get to the millennium is that the, one of the major problems with understanding many things about what goes on today in the church when it comes to the tongues problem, the charismatic question, it even touches on uh, the underlying theologies and philosophies of what's called the church growth movement, all of them are related to some sort of uh, distortion of a millennial doctrine. What, in what sense, if any, are we living in the kingdom today? So ultimately, all of these things, all these doctrines related to the tribulation and millennium have some kind of impact as to how we understand the church age, what's going on today, and God's plan and purpose for our life. Eighteen percent uh, of the epistles... Now, the epistles are talking about, if they're talking about prophecy in the epistles, it's not fulfilled in the church age. So 18% of the epistles are prophetic. That's almost one out of every five verses in the epistles are talking about unfulfilled prophecy. One out of every five verses touches on prophecy. If you don't understand prophecy, don't understand eschatology, you won't understand that. Furthermore, beyond just the simple aspects of direct prophecy, 60% of the New Testament... Uh, 60% of the verses in the New Testament 
have their interpretation directly impacted by how you understand prophecy. If you're amil, you're going to interpret 60% of those verses a certain way. If you're post-mill, you'll, it'll change. If you're pre-mill, it'll change. If you're dispensational, it'll change. 60% of the verses, how you interpret 60% of the verses in the New Testament is directly impacted by how you understand prophecy and prophetic things. So if you don't have a correct understanding of eschatology and what God's going to do in the future and God's plan in history, then we may have some really fuzzy, fuzzy, screwed up, confused ideas about present-day application of church-age doctrine in the New Testament. That's why understanding prophecy is so important. Well, these are the four views. We talked about the partial trib, the mid-trib, post-trib, and then the pre-trib concept of the rapture. This is our dispensational chart. We have two ages before the cross, the age of the Gentiles and the age of Israel. Each of these ages is further subdivided into dispensations. You have the age of the Gentiles divided into dispensation of perfect environment, conscience, and human government. Age of Israel divided into patriarchs, mosaic law, and I might even put the messianic age as a subdivision, subdispensation to the age of Israel because it's focusing on Jesus coming as Messiah even though he fulfills the law, it's a hinge dispensation, fulfills the law and sets the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. Then we come into the present church age, and that ends with the rapture, symbolized by the arrow going up, and that then precedes the seven-year tribulation. So last time we started with... Seven reasons why I believe there is a pre-tribulation rapture, that the rapture of the church will occur before the seven-year tribulation. And the seven-year tribulation relates to God's plan for Israel. It is technically, it's, question came up this last week, uh, how do we know that the age of Israel, that, that the tribulation is part of the age of Israel. We're going to see that tonight when we look at Daniel 9, that these, this is the last year in what's called uh, the 70th year of Daniel's 70 years. It's the last year related, and God said that this, these 70 years were decreed for Daniel, his people, and uh, the holy city of Jerusalem. So this is part of that timetable, just as the other 69 weeks related to Israel, these two too. The Mosaic Law is not in effect, but neither does it have the indwelling, filling ministries or any of the other ministries of God the Holy Spirit. So it is a distinct dispensation, I think, in the age of Israel, not in the church age. It ends with the second coming, which initiates then the 1,000-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Okay, the first reason we looked at last time is that there must be a consistent distinction between Israel and the church. This is found, I'm going to review these quickly, this is found in Romans 11, 25 and 26. There's a distinction between Israel and the church. Israel has a distinct beginning here, and at Christ's first advent, there is a break. This is the Messianic age. It ends with Christ's ascension. And then there is another um, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, another comforter God. Uh, Christ calls him, Christ being the first comforter, the Holy Spirit being the second. There is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost, which begins the church age. Israel is dispersed from the land in 70 A.D., and they are scattered throughout all the nations until the end of the church age, and we begin to see a regathering of unregenerate Israel to the land, and that must occur. We don't know how long. There's no fulfilled prophecy, but there must be a nation Israel at the beginning of the tribulation. Rapture ends with the, uh, the church age ends with the rapture. Then you have the seven-year tribulation, which comes back to Daniel 70 weeks. There's a break between the 69th week in Daniel's plan in the, the plan for Israel revealed to Daniel, and the 70th week. That's important. The church age comes in between that 69th and 70th week. And then the 70th week is the seven-year tribulation. 
Romans 11.25 makes it clear that God has a distinct plan for Israel separate from the church. A partial hardening at the end of verse 25. There's a partial hardening now to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Once that happens, then all Israel will be saved. Then the second reason we looked at was the, uh, that the purposes for the tribulation do not relate to the church. The purposes for the tribulation do not relate to the church. The purposes instead relate to Israel. There are four purposes to the tribulation. First, to execute judgment on the wicked and on the rebellious nations who have both rejected Christ and Israel. This is stated again and again and again through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets. God is going to bring judgment on all of the wicked nations for the way they have rejected the Messiah and the way they have treated Israel. This is part of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant promise, those who curse you, I will curse. Second, to demonstrate the inability of Satan to rule the planet. This ties it into the angelic conflict. Satan is trying to be, he is the God of this age, but he is failing. He fails because there's six billion people, individuals with sin natures running around, and each one of them wants to be a little God. Because that's what he promised. He told Eve, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God. And we all want to be like God, so he's got a problem. And so all the evil, all the suffering, all the wars, all the famine, all the problems that we encounter just demonstrate that Satan is incapable of running the planet. He cannot bring together any kind of peace, any kind of world harmony, even though that's his agenda and that's his, he continues to strive for that. It will provide a time for millions to be saved. Millions of those who are unsaved now will be saved. And it, part of the reason they're saved is because of the incredible pressure put on them from all of the judgments during the tribulation. Although for many, many millions more, they will continue to harden their hearts against God. And then finally, it prepares the nation Israel for the Messiah and his kingdom. God puts them in such a vice that they finally get to the point that they cannot resist anymore. And that is part of the purpose, is to get Israel to face reality. It's a time of preparation for Israel's restoration and conversion. Second, it's called the time of Jacob's tribulation or Jacob's trouble, Jacob's distress in Jeremiah 37. That indicates again that all of this is related to Israel, not to the church. Uh, While the church currently experiences tribulations, she will not experience the tribulation. So this, there is a distinction there. Fourth, the church is mentioned 19 times in Revelation 1 through 3, or the word church, ecclesia. It's mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation. But between chapters 4 and chapters 19, which covers the tribulation period, the church is never mentioned. It's never mentioned because it's not on the earth. The tribulation, therefore, is for Israel. It is not for the church. This is a diagram of Daniel's 70 weeks. We're going to take this apart in detail before the night's over. This is sort of a foreshadowing of things to come. These are the first 69 weeks from the decree to restore for, for, uh, from Artaxerxes in 444 B.C. for the Jews to go back to the land and to rebuild, a, to rebuild the uh, uh city to the time that Messiah the Prince is cut off, March 30th, A.D. 33, was fulfilled literally. Then there is, nothing is fulfilled. You don't have a, in the last seven-year period, the last week, it's a seven-incremental seven period, which is the tribulation. Uh, there's an abomination, desolation. Nothing in the last week has been fulfilled. Everything in the first 69 weeks was fulfilled literally. If it was fulfilled literally through the first 69 weeks, the assumption is it's fulfilled just as literally in the last week because it hasn't been fulfilled. It is yet future. So all of this is just to make the point that in terms of the purposes for the tribulation, they relate to Israel, not to the church. Therefore, there's no reason for the church to be on the planet at that time. Third, the church is never said to be the wrath of God, the object of the wrath of God. 
Wrath is a technical term for God's extreme judgment during the uh, final period of Daniel's 70th week. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there, salvation is being used to phase three salvation, glorification, not phase one salvation, justification. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the church does not... Encounter the wrath of God. Revelation 3.9 and Revelation 3.10 reinforce this, that we will be kept from the hour of testing in Revelation 3.10. Last time I told you you need to repunctuate this in your Bible. There is a period in most translations at the end of verse 9. That is because the King James translators had a tendency to start every verse with a, as a complete sentence. So he tried to end every verse with a period and start a verse with a new sentence. However, in the Greek, and I got this from John Niemöller, Dr. Niemöller, who teaches Greek out of Chafer Seminary. Uh, he has, he, he's one of these guys who is tremendous in the original languages and has lots of time to, to research all of the hundreds and hundreds of usages of a hati clause. That's the Greek word translated because. It's the Greek word hati. And he, goes, he has gone through and examined every single hati in Greek and noticed that in like 98% of the cases, it does not, re- you have a hati clause does not, is not, is, which is a subordinate clause, that because you have kept the word of my perseverance, is a subordinate clause. That's not your main clause. In Greek, your subordinate clause usually, 98% of the time, follows the main clause. It doesn't precede the main clause. See, the way that King James translators translated it, by having it start the sentence, the main clause would be, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. So, because then would modify would explain the keeping you from the hour of testing. I also will keep you from the hour of testing because you have kept the word of my perseverance. Now, that tr- translation is some, one reason why some people hold to a partial rapture view, that those who keep the word of my perseverance are raptured. However, if the causal phrase is follows the main clause, then it should be attached to verse 9 and... The break should come after perseverance. Therefore, it would read, starting with the behold, up here in verse 9, Behold, I will make them, that is, those who have been in opposition to this church, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. Period. Second comment, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. So that makes it clear you've got two different statements here, and the keeping you from the hour of testing is not dependent upon anything else. So the church, therefore, from these we conclude from these verses, the church is never the object of the wrath of God. And then we must realize that the judgments of the tribulation are unique in all of human history. These are not like other judgments. They are unique. Matthew 24:21. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. The disease, the death, the uh, changes in the atmosphere, the changes in nature, in the creation, the earthquakes, the pestilence is going to be far, is going to far surpass anything that we have ever seen in human history. And yet those who, many people who want to hold to another position other than the pre-trib rapture tend to diminish the extreme severity of the tribulation. Because they have church-age believers going through all those terrible things, and somehow they try to protect the church. 
But earthquakes, hailstone storms where the hailstones weigh 100 pounds, these things do not discriminate between the believer and the unbeliever living in the same house. So the same house will fall down on both believer and unbeliever, and uh, the believer won't be protected. I mean, this is not what is portrayed in the Scriptures. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress or Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved from it. Daniel 12.1 reiterates this. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. It is going to be extreme. Joel 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So there is, great, there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. The time of the tribulation is a time that is a hundred times worse than any of the calamities we can imagine. There was just the earthquake in India that measured, I think it was like 8.6 or 8.7 on the Richter scale. The most extreme uh, earthquake occurred off the coast of Chile back in the early 70s, I think, or 50s, 60s. And it was like 9.3. I think those would be small aftershocks compared to the kind of earthquakes that are going to Uh, be experienced during the tribulation. Well, that's all by way of review. Point number four. Fourth reason why I believe in the rapture is the doctrine of imminency. The doctrine of imminency. That's spelled I-M-M-I-N, not E-M-M. There's a difference between being imminent and being imminent. Somebody asked me the other day if... um, I was going to finish First John if, the, my, if I was going to finish First John anytime soon, and I said it will be a soon finishing, but not an imminent one. <laughs> imminent means at any moment. The Oxford English Dictionary defines imminent as something that is hanging overhead, something constantly ready to befall or overtake one, something that is close at hand. In its incidents, it could happen at any moment, but does not necessarily have to. It does not, there's nothing that means, nothing that is required first. It could happen at any moment. It doesn't necessarily mean soon, but it does mean certain. Three words that we uh, need to emphasize in defining it is that it is certain. It is absolutely certain that Jesus will return, but it is uncertain when it will occur. And third, it is not contingent on any other events. It is impending. It is not necessarily soon or immediate, but it could happen at any moment. If the return of Jesus can happen at any moment and nothing has to happen before it happens, then what we are looking for next is the return of Jesus Not the rise of the Antichrist, not the rebuilding of the temple, not the famines or the wars or the earthquakes, but the next event in God's prophetic timetable is the return of Jesus for the church. Therefore, that is why his return is called the blessed hope of the church. That's what we're looking for. If you don't believe in a pre-trib rapture, if you're mid-trib, post-trib, any of the other views, then what you are looking for is the rise of the Antichrist. What you are looking for is the calamities that will occur, the judgments that will occur. What you are looking for is something else. In other words, you're not looking for the blessed hope of the return of Jesus. You're looking for something else. So that's the importance of the the doctrine of eminency. The second coming, on the other hand, is not imminent because there are specific signs that must precede the second coming. The Antichrist must appear. There must be the abomination of desolation. There must be a peace treaty with Israel. There's going to be judgment. There's going to be wars. There's going to be the invasion from the north. There's going to be the rise of the king of the south and the king of the east, the battle of Armageddon. All of those things have to precede the second coming. But nothing precedes the rapture. That's the next thing in God's plan. Therefore, if nothing 
must precede, then that is what we are looking for. Imminence means that an event that could, but does not necessarily take place at any moment. It could take place at any moment. Soon, secondly, soon is not the same as imminent. Third, an imminent event could happen soon, but it may not occur for another 2,000 years. But it could happen tomorrow. It could happen tonight. Fourth, no prophetic event must take place before an imminent event uh, can happen. And fifth, the rapture is imminent while Christ's second coming is not. 1 Corinthians 1.7 states, Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if it's not imminent, then you wouldn't await eagerly the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You would be awaiting the rise of the Antichrist, the tribulation. And then you would know that his coming was seven years away. 1 Corinthians 16.22 concludes with the uh, greeting that they used in the early church, Maranatha, our Lord comes, indicating that that is what they were anticipating. Philippians 3.20 emphasizes our citizenship, that it is in heaven, and we await, eagerly await our Savior. We, they were waiting for Him. They thought it would occur in their lifetime. Philippians 4.5, Paul says, The Lord is near. He is at hand. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 we are to wait for His Son from heaven. They saw it as a present reality. Titus 2.13, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. James 5.7 states, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You, rains. you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we are to wait for His Son from heaven. 1 Corinthians 1.7, awaiting eagerly. Some of these I've gone through already. I'll skip ahead. To First Thess four fifteen. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Now in First Thessalonians four fifteen, Paul is addressing a problem that's occurred in the Thessalonian church. He taught prophecy when he was there. He taught them that uh, the Lord was going to come, and the Lord's coming was soon. And they didn't. They were so impressed with imminency, they didn't expect any of them would die. But all of a sudden. Some of them began to die. So they didn't know what would happen to them. And so Paul is comforting them. He's telling them not to grieve. Now, it's not much of a comfort to say, well, the Lord's going to come back, but we're all going to have to go through the tribulation first. So he is comforting them, and there's no mention of the tribulation. Instead, he emphasizes the eminency, the nearness of Christ's return, and doesn't suggest at all that, well, the Lord's coming back, but just hold on to your seats because we're going to have to go through the tribulation first. All of these passages indicate the, the nearness, the eminency of the Lord's coming in the early church. Romans 13, 11, and 12, And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. By that he means glorification. The night is almost gone, the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And there we see that prophecy is important because it reminds us that there is a day of accountability even for believers and that this could happen at any moment, so it should drive us on, spur us on, move us on, to pursue uh, excellence in our spiritual life. Now, let's, let me just skip ahead here. A few passages. Point number five, covered imminency. Some of that was redundant. I had some things in there twice. 
the distinction between the rapture and the second coming. There are certain things in the scripture that are said of the rapture, and there are certain things that are said of the second coming, and there is a discrepancy between the two. They, the, the two things cannot be said of the same event. There, so we must make a distinction. We must see that, that Christ coming for the church is distinct from the second coming. First of all, the rapture, the rapture relates to the translation of all believers. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together to be with him. We are changed in the twinkling of an eye. Believers are translated. We, we put off mortality and put on immortality. But at the second coming of Christ, there is no translation at all. Tribulation saints who survive the tribulation do not receive resurrection bodies. They are not changed. Second, translated saints go to heaven. Jesus comes back. He says, where I am, there you may be also in heaven. But translated saints at the second coming come to the earth where we will establish the kingdom of Christ, the messianic or millennial kingdom, and rule and reign with him during the millennium. Third, at the rapture, the earth is not judged. There is no judgment. At the second coming, the earth is judged and righteousness is established. In fact, there's a 75-year transition period between the Battle of Armageddon and the inauguration of the kingdom, which is sort of a mopping up operation on the planet, time of judging the uh, those who survived the tribulation, who are unbelievers, and the establishment of the kingdom. You don't see that happen at the rapture. Fourth, the rapture can happen at any moment. There are no signs related to that, but the second coming follows definite predicted signs, including the tribulation. One point you ought to notice on this is that the second coming and the resurrection of believers was clearly taught in the Old Testament. The Old Testament taught taught that Messiah would come, that Messiah would establish a kingdom, taught the resurrection of the believer. But in 1 Corinthians 15.51, the resurrection or translation of the believer in that passage is said to be a mystery. Mystery means it was not revealed in the Old Testament. Therefore, what's taught in 1 Corinthians 15 is different from the resurrection taught for the Old Testament believer. That means that 1 Corinthians 15.51 can't be talking about the second coming. Fifth, the rapture is not predicted in the Old Testament. No mention of the rapture in the Old Testament, no suggestion of it, because, of course, the church isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, the second coming is predicted often in the Old Testament. The second coming is predicted often, but the rapture is not predicted at all. The rapture was a mystery. Six. Keep hitting too many buttons. The rapture is for believers only and the second coming affects all mankind. Affects all mankind because when Jesus comes back, he separates the sheep from the goats. He, Israel is regenerate. He establishes his kingdom. Those who survive who are believers go into the kingdom and those who are unbelievers are sent to condemnation. The rapture takes place before the day of wrath and the second coming concludes the day of wrath. The rapture precedes the day of wrath. The second coming concludes the day of wrath. day of wrath is one of about 20 different terms used to describe the tribulation in the Old Testament. Eight. There's no reference to Satan or Satan's activities in relation to the rapture, but at the second coming, Satan is bound. 
Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are sent to the bottomless pit in chains and bound throughout the thousand-year messianic kingdom. Ninth, Christ comes for his own at the rapture, and he comes with his own at the second coming. At the rapture, he comes for the church. At the second coming, the church accompanies him as his bride. Christ comes for his own at the rapture. He comes with his own at the second coming. Christ comes in the air, in the clouds at the rapture. He t- He comes all the way to the earth at the second coming. The rapture is only in the air. The second coming is all the way to the earth. At the rapture, Christ claims his bride. At the second coming, he comes with his bride, invites uh, all to the wedding feast, and celebrates the wedding feast, which is the beginning at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. So Christ claims his bride at the, at the rapture, but he comes with his bride at the second coming. At the rapture, only believers will see him. Everyone will hear the noises, the trumpet, the shout of the archangel, but only his own will actually see him. Yet at his return to the second coming, every eye will see him. Believer and unbeliever, every eye will see him. After the rapture, the tribulation begins. After the second coming, the messianic or millennial kingdom begins. Now, that's just 13 of the many differences between the rapture and the second coming. And because the scripture makes those distinctions, we must conclude that the rapture must precede the tribulation. It can't be identified as happening at the end of the tribulation or at the same time that Christ comes back to the earth. They are distinct events. The sixth reason we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture is because there must be an interval of time between the rapture and the second coming. There must be an interval. There are things that have to take place between the two before the second coming can take place. At the end of the church age, we have the rapture. The tribulation takes place on the earth during a seven-year period of time. But certain things happen in the heavenlies. First of all, the church is evaluated. All believers in the church age are evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ for rewards and inheritance blessings. And that determines our place, our position, and our responsibilities in the millennial kingdom. Second, there is the marriage of the Lamb in heaven. Christ claims his bride at the rapture and the marriage of the Lamb takes place. The marriage, marriage takes place before the marriage feast in Jewish custom. So if the wedding feast takes place at the second coming, then the marriage had to have transpired before that. And third, there is going to be salvation for many on the earth who will enter the millennium. There must be salvation for those who will enter the millennium as I demonstrated earlier. And then Christ returns. And then seventh, the seventh reason I believe in a pre-trib rapture is that there is no evidence of the church in the tribulation. There is no evidence at all anywhere in the scripture that there is, that the church is found in the tribulation. Now, the tribulation itself it's referred to by many different terms. Now that we've concluded the six reasons why I believe in a pre-trib rapture, we need to look at the doctrine of the tribulation. The doctrine of the tribulation and the terminology related to the tri- tribulation. The first term that is used to describe the tribulation in Scripture is Daniel's 70th week. You need to open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 9. Verses 24 to 27. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. This is a fantastic prophecy, one of the most precise prophecies in all of Scripture. Daniel 
is thinking about how long his people will stay in captivity. By this time, Daniel is quite old, probably in his late 70s or into his 80s. If we are right in assuming that Daniel was about 13 or 14 years of age at the time of his captivity in 605 B.C. in the first uh, group that was taken prisoner, taken from Jerusalem, then by this time, roughly um, five, probably about 539 B.C., uh, 66 years has gone by. 66 and 14 is close to 80. So somewhere in his early 80s. And he realizes that the nation is not supposed to stay in captivity forever. They will go back to the land. He knows that God promised this, that they would be restored to the land. It's promised again and again in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. So he is reading in Jeremiah, and he's meditating on the Scriptures, and he prays on the basis of that, seeking an answer as to when the people would be restored. Gabriel appears to him and gives him a revelation, the timetable for their restoration. Verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, 70 weeks is not a really a good translation of the Hebrew. It's Sheva'im which means 70 sevens, 70 periods of seven increments. So if you take 70, multiply it times seven, that's 490 increments or 490 years covering the entire period. 70 weeks or 490 years have been decreed from your people, that is Jews, Israel, Judah and Israel, northern and southern kingdom, and your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, that's the starting point, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, not just to return to the land, that happened in 538, when Cyrus said, you can go back. But from a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that doesn't happen until Artaxerxes gives that decree to Nehemiah in 444 B.C. To restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks or 49 years and 62 weeks. So it breaks it down. Now that first period, seven weeks, seven times seven is 49. That's roughly how long it took to rebuild the city. And 62 weeks, 62 weeks, uh, for, it covers the period from that restoration until uh, Messiah the Prince when Jesus Christ was rejected after the triumphal entry on what we call Palm Sunday. So there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza. It, the city, will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. That means it's going to have the walls rebuilt, everything rebuilt, all the fortifications. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he, that is the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many. The many is a term for Israel. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, seven-year period. But in the middle of the week, he will stop. He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, what we see in this prophecy is that it is crucial for understanding end-time events. We see here that the tribulation is a specific seven-year period. It's divided into two equal periods of three and a half years each, and that what divides them is an event called the abomination of desolation. And what that is, is the Antichrist goes into the temple, stops sacrifice, and puts a statue, an idol of himself in the Holy of Holies in the temple for all to worship. And that is a sign of the last three and a half years. Now, it's important to understand that God's timetable is precise. Daniel was reading the prophecies of Jeremiah, which tells us he had some 
parts of the canon available to him, even while he was in captivity, and they knew that it was the Word of God. Jeremiah 25:11 he reads, "In this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then it will be, when seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord. That happened when per, uh, the Medes and the Persians came in that night that the handwriting appeared on the wall. I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord. The Persians defeated the Babylonians, set up their own kingdom, and then let the Jews go home. I will punish them for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. Then in Jeremiah 29.10, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So there is the promise of restoration of the nation. It's interesting how precise that was. In 605 B.C., the nation, the first captives were taken out. Nebuchadnezzar defeated them, didn't destroy the city, but he took a group of captives, young men, young aristocrats, back to Babylon. That was in 605. In 536 B.C., 70 years later, they, the, the, those who returned laid the foundation for the temple. In 586 B.C., the temple was destroyed. In 516, the temple was completed, 70 years. So God is precise in his timetable. Now, Daniel 70 weeks predicts precise time of Israel's history. The first 69 weeks of years relates to the first coming of the Messiah. The final week of years, or seven years, relates to Christ's second coming. There is the chart. The first 69 weeks go up from, if you count it all out, it's a, uh, you can figure out the days precisely. From March 5th, 444 B.C., we know that is when Artaxerxes gave the decree to return to the land, to March 30th, A.D. 33, when Christ uh, entered Jerusalem with a triumphal entry. We know that that fulfills the timetable precisely. Then the Messiah is cut off. At the end of the 69th week and the last week, the last seven-year period is hanging out there and is not, does not begin until the prince who is to come establishes the peace treaty. Nothing like that has happened. It's never been established that Rome uh, has never made a peace treaty with Jerusalem. So this is yet future. The way you figure it out is you take the first 69 weeks... Multiply that by seven, and you get 360, and then you multiply that again by 360 days, because the prophetic year in Scripture has only 360 days. So 69 weeks times 69 times seven times 360 comes out to 173,880 days. Scholars have figured out that from March 5th, 444 B.C. to March 30th. 33 A.D. is exactly 173,880 days. You can verify it, little reverse mathematics, from 444 B.C. to A.D. 33 is 476 years. 476 years times 365 and a quarter days comes out to 173,855 days. You take, then you add to that the days between March 5th and March 30th, which is 25 days, and you come out with a total of 173,880 days. So God's timetable is precise. So just as that happened uh, precisely, so the tribulation will. Now, the rationale, the reason we have 360 day, 360 day years is because in Daniel 9.27 refers to the second half of the tribulation as a half a week. In Daniel 7.25, Daniel 12.7, and Revelation 12.14, it's called time, times, that would be three, and a half a time. Three and a half. Three and a half years. In Revelation 12.6 and 11.3, it's said to be 1,260 days. It's also described as 42 months in Revelation 11.2 and Revelation 13.5. And 42 months equals 1,260 days equals time times half time and a half a week. 
Therefore, a month must equal 30 days and a year 360 days. That's what's called a solar year. Six items are mentioned in Daniel 9.24. The 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. It's restricted to Israel. It's not talking about the church. It's talking about Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, and to make atonement for iniquity. That happened at the first advent. Fourth, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That happens at the second coming. To seal up vision in prophecy, which means to bring it to completion. That happens at the second coming and the Millennial Kingdom, and six, to anoint the most holy place with the Millennial Temple. So the first three relate to the first coming, and the second three relate to the second coming. So Daniel 70 weeks then provides us with a precise timetable for the coming tribulation as being a time of seven years split into by the appearance of the Antichrist, uh, at the temple to uh, blaspheme God and set himself up as a God for worship. That is the first technical term used for the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. Next time we'll come back and look at the rest and see what characterizes the tribulation with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this time to look at your word and to understand your timetable, to see that you are always faithful to your promises despite our disobedience. And even though Israel was disobedient and rejected the Messiah, they have not been cast aside, but they will be restored. And we are reminded that you are continuously faithful to your promises and continuously faithful to your people Israel. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we've studied tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.